Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 40. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So now this is Palm Sunday, but we are not in a typical Palm Sunday text, but I have good news for you. Four weeks ago, we did a Palm, we did the Palm Sunday text in the Gospel of Luke as we were working through it. So I'm not revisiting that text here this morning. If you just really have a hankering for a, a Palm Sunday sermon, you can, yes, Ashlyn under Palm, then you can go home and download it, or I can get you a copy of it, and you can listen to a very recent sermon on on Palm Sunday. So that's one reason why we won't be, uh, we're not focusing on that text in this morning. So if you really have an itch to hear that, you can hear it. But there also is some intentionality with going with this text that I want us to, to embrace here. And the reality is we have 52 Sundays a year to get together and worship. 52 to get together in corporate worship. So if you take 52 hours of services out of I did the math here. If you're awake 16 hours a, a day, that's, that's 5,840 hours of waking life that you have each year. So, okay, 5,840 hours of waking life. And if you show up to church every Sunday, you have spent 52 hours in it in corporate worship. That is less than 1% of your waking hours spent here. <laughs> Okay, that isn't a huge amount of percentage of your life. And so if we, if we, I, I don't, I want to be very decisive in the way that we approach how we spend our time together and working through this book in the scope of life. I mean, I, I went to my friend's house uh, last night. He called me Doug Schwant, and that his wife had just taken her last breath. And some of you work hospice here. You know how awful that is to, to go in and, and you just, you, you're dealing with the reality of cancer and death. And I went and, and cried with him and prayed with him. And, and the scope of those sorts of things going on around us all the time. 
in, this, in the realities of, of cancer in life, in the realities of, of just disappointments, family fights, family disappointments, kids going astray, all of these hard things. And even, even in the mundane moments of life, sometimes it isn't the catastrophic event that's going on in your life. Sometimes it's just the, the I have a sink full of dishes again. And it's just kind of the, the same thing over and over, the mundane realities of life. We need something of gravity. And I want that our gatherings together on Sunday mornings, that we are trying to grab hold of and root ourselves on something solid, something secure, Sunday after Sunday, with intentionality, trying to ground ourselves in something solid. And so that is why we, again, Work through books of the Bible. And I, we've been doing this for going, going to be three years, June 1st. We've been just working through passages of the Bible. And we haven't skipped a chapter of the Gospel of Luke in 20 chapters. In a few months, maybe, we'll finish the whole book. And I, and I, and I don't say this every Sunday, but I, I want to revisit the purpose for doing that every so often. We do that is, we do that for the reason of trying to build a high value to this book. A high value to God's special revelation to us. We want to be, and I want to build here and to grow here, myself included, an environment of people who live underneath the Word of God. Who have a respect for what God has communicated to us. Have a submission to everything that God has written. That we don't cherry pick this book. That we don't take the parts we like and Avoid the parts we don't, but that everything that God has revealed has authority over us as Christians. Today, everyone is constructing their own standards. Trusting whatever is inside of your heart. Trusting your own passions. Trusting your own instincts. You know, if you feel it in the deepest part of you, then it must be right. Everyone is chasing their own standards. But here we are seeking to build in this faith family a group of people who live under the standard of God's word, what he has revealed to us, what he has said. So then that brings us to our text this morning. Now, though we're not doing a Palm Sunday uh, text of him marching in, this is right after Palm Sunday. This is in the Holy Week event, right? We've just recently gone through the reality of Jesus the King marching into Jerusalem. And he's had a busy few days. It has been, um, we've seen the cleansing of the temple after he comes in. He throws out the money changers. He teaches very... um, Harshly, very, very directly with the the leaders of false religion. He gets in a lot of uh, hot water with them. They try to get him in trouble. They try to trick him with a question about taxes, trying to get him in trouble with the government. And now the Sadducees so show up and they're trying to bring a different kind of difficulty to them. Jesus isn't questioned by the normal Pharisees. These Sadducees show up and they bring to him a hypothetical Scenario. If you are interested in logic, if you study logic, it's a reductio ad absurdum is the official way that you argue. Is a reductio ad like you you reduce the thing to its most you take it to its most ridiculous level, most hypothetical ridiculous uh, level to show the error of the argument. And so that's what they're trying to bring to Jesus: this reductio ad absurdum. And they go over this issue of a woman having obedience. 
uh, woman and her with uh, husband and, and their obedience to Leverite marriage by, by this extreme example. Um, the rules for Leverite marriage, we hear that today, and I had a conversation with a couple weeks ago with somebody that had read this passage and what is this? What is that about? I mean, we don't we don't practice this anymore, and <laughs> in the New Covenant Christianity, we do not practice the concept of Levite marriage. But it was very important back then. They were a people tied to a specific land. We no longer have a specific land as as believers in Christ. Our promised land is a future coming land. One day Christ will return, and we will have a land, a new heavens, and a new earth. That's under the New Covenant. Under this Old Covenant in Judaism, they had a land. They had Israel were their promised borders. And each family had its, had its possession. And so what would happen, that was to be passed on from generation to generation to generation. And so if a, a, a firstborn son, who the, the line of the, the progeny, the line of uh, descendants went to, if he married but did not produce an heir and died, then the next in line to get married would, would take that woman to be his wife. And then they would, that first offspring of this marriage, would be considered the descendant of the older brother to keep the line of property going, to, to keep that, the, um, the spreading of that line and to keep that land to that family. So this was a very important rule set up in Old Testament Judaism to, to keep families in possession of their land. They had a very specific land. And so this, is in, this can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. So the Sadducees' complaint is that if this were true, let's think of this hypothetical situation that would make the eternal state uh, an eternal nightmare. <laughs> Because this woman has married now seven men with no descendant. And so they get into the eternal state. The Sadducees who believe there's no resurrection. Their argument basically is he's going to get to heaven. He's going to have seven wives. What kind of a nightmare is that going to be in the eternal state? And so their argument is see how if the Levite marriage, which is in the law, is to be obeyed, is true. Then either that should be disobeyed or there is no resurrection. That's kind of how their argument goes. So this group, they do not believe there is a resurrection. They're trying to back Jesus into a corner and say something wrong or laughable in their day. They're trying to discredit Jesus. That's what discredit Jesus. That's what all these things are about. Get him in trouble. Silence him. Make him look a fool. Make him say something heretical. Bring, bring problems to Jesus so that they can disprove his authority. Now, there are some general truths that we can get from this narrative that they are interesting. Jesus tells them, they don't know what they're talking about. He says that the res in the resurrection, the lives of those who have obtained the resurrection will not be exactly as they are now. And general truths that we see here, are, I, got, I got three of these, two of these down with some subheadings. The, the first reality we see that Jesus is pointing out is that there is a life after this one. He's speaking about the resurrection and he's in direct contrast with the Sadducees who say there is no life after this one. Jesus is clearly teaching this life is not the end, that there will be a resurrection. He's affirming the reality that had been believed throughout Judaism and is now taught throughout the New Testament as well, that there is a coming resurrection, that this life and your death in this life is not the end. 
There is something out beyond this. We do not go into oblivion. We do not just cease to exist. We do not return to stardust. We, we will be resurrected. There is a life after this one. The other reality is that our lives in that day will be like the angels, he says. Now, that does not mean that we are going to fly around and have wings and play harps and sit on clouds. That's the far side cartoon version of heaven. And so, uh, just to, uh, you know, and I, if you said, I don't want to, I don't want to say anything too harshly, but when people die, they do not become angels. That is not, that is not the point of Jesus in this teaching here. That is, uh, that is misconstrued from this text sometimes. That what happens is now, now that we die here, we go into heaven and we become an angel. And we are now guardian angels or something along those lines. Angels are a created being, a class all of themselves. They are created by God, supernatural beings. You are not a supernatural. You have a spirit, but we, we, have, we are embodied. We are flesh and blood. We are humans. We are God's creatures descended from Adam and Eve, separate, different from angels. We do not become them. So what is he saying in this reality of we'll be like the angels? Well, it says right in verse 36, they'll be like the angels for they cannot die anymore. This coming state will be real, will be a life after death. And it will be an eternal life. The angels live forever. They do not cease to exist. They perpetuate, they live forever. And so we will be like the angels in this resurrected life in that our life will go on and will not end. You see how that, he's, it's a very specific reference to us being like angels. Not that we'll have wings and you know, come back and, you know, help people on earth. No, we'll, we'll have eternal life as the angels do. And so then because we will have eternal life, it, it changes the way that marriage works. That's the, that's the, that's the um, blowing up of this argument. In order for things to not get all weird about the eternal state, then we have to have a clear understanding of the meaning, meanings and purposes of marriage. If you force this text, within, and if you force our modern concept of marriage onto this text, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like what we classify as marriage and the mean of marriage as some sort of personal fulfillment. Like that's, that's the chief pinnacle end of marriage is you fall in love, it's a romantic thing, and it is for your own personal fulfillment. And that's why marriage has gone the way that it has gone in our culture. It's just about your personal fulfillment. Now, is there... Fulfillment in marriage? Absolutely. There should be. There can be. There isn't always, but there can be. But that isn't the primary purpose of marriage. And, and we have to kind of understand this from the perspective of, of their, their worldview. We, we, I know that in today we pretend that we can just make marriage whatever we want it to be. But marriage is a creation institute. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, that's the first or second page in your Bible. When we go all the way back to Genesis 2.24, we read that after the creation of Adam and the making of Eve from his side, he commands them, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is, the, this is the beginning narrative, the covenant of marriage being brought in immediately after creation. This man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this was a necessary part of life for a previous 
command that God had given them. What was the command that God had given them? Well, in Genesis 1.28, God commands them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we can see from those two, God commands them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The two should become one flesh is to facilitate the fulfillment of this command. One of the main purposes and one of the purposes of marriage, there are multiples, but one of the purposes of marriage is, is for progeny is so that life will go on. If, if, if no one gets married and no one has any kids, then this all we disappear from the face of the earth, right? I don't think I have to build that argument. I don't have to work too hard on that argument, do I? That if we don't uh, make children, then humanity ceases to exist. And so marriage is a very important uh, stability to that reality. That the wife, the child, the husband come together, covenant together to provide and care for one another. So the children are raised up in a healthy environment. And then they can then grow up and perpetuate the family line so that you and I can sit here today. Right? So that you and I are sitting here. So this is one of the reasons for marriage is to perpetuate the human race. But Jesus is saying, in the resurrection, we'll be like the angels. There will be no need for the human race to be perpetuated because those who are there are children of the resurrection, will live forever. And so therefore, marriage in that meaning doesn't have its function anymore. So there'll be something different. Now, we could go on and on with, uh, and it's an interesting topic to go to, but it just helps us understand, I think, what Jesus is getting at. In the resurrection, there'll be no need for reproduction, for we will be as the angels in our eternal living. That's the point of his argument. Okay, so that, in a nutshell, that's where he's arguing against the Sadducees on this whole issue. But, as we asked last week, you know, was that about taxes or was something else going on? And is this really just about marriage and resurrection and whatever? Those are general truths. It's, it's the reality that we can glean from this passage. But is that the main point? Is that what Luke really wants us to see? A few truths about the eternal state and the purposes of marriage? I don't, I don't think so. I think Luke is highlighting... With these Sadducees, look how they come to Jesus. Look how they approach them. We've had the, the statement of, uh, to the Pharisees that the, the cornerstone, the cornerstone that you removed becomes, or the stone that you rejected has become the cornerstone, and you either trip over it and are crushed, tripped over it and break, or fall underneath it and are crushed. And we talked about that week how there's a third way to come to Jesus, and it's not to be broken upon him or crushed underneath him, but to be broken before him. Well, look how these Sadducees are coming to Jesus. They're, they're coming with, also with their position already made up and seeking to find a way to get out of underneath the authority of Jesus. They had a point they wanted to get proved or at least to make Jesus waver in his assurance. They came to Jesus with a position which brings us to our big idea this morning. I got something on the board. Our big idea this morning is that coming to Jesus with a position instead of submission is clinging to false religion. Coming to Jesus with a position. This is what I've decided. 
this, this feels right, this must be right, there's a problem, and I come to Jesus with a position, Jesus, you must conform to what I want, or else I'm going to think up some hypothetical case to make it seem ridiculous, so that I can get out of your authority, essentially, is what the Sadducees want to do. False religion of this type that comes to Jesus with a position, instead of submission before the Lord of the universe is clinging to false religion, and that false religion leaves you stranded outside of the kingdom of God. They are convinced of a position, and they have no desire to hear honest truth regarding this issue. They've made up their minds. Sadducees are certain this is the way it should be. They have no interest. They, will, they have made up their minds. They'll only listen to Jesus if he's interested in conceding that they have a good point. I don't think they care if Jesus is even right or not. This type of false religion, and I don't think they care if, if Jesus says they're right. This type of false religion is very happy just to sow seeds of doubt and confusion. Just ask a bunch of questions. Just kind of throw out a bunch of hypotheticals. But what about this and this and this and this? Ask question after question after question. Build incredible case upon incredible case so that you never have to actually come to any sort of an answer. Do they come to Jesus in search of truth? Or do they, do they come in submission to hear the words from God on this matter? They don't. But further, their arguments are all tied up in what I... Theological squirrels. You know, you've, if you've watched... It, what movie is it? Uh, guy, huh? Pup? Up? Not up? Is that the, the dog that's always like, Squirrel! That you know, he's on a mission, the dog, and you can see a dog doing this is really into what's going on. And a squirrel runs by, and he's squirrel and goes and chases the squirrel instead of focusing on what's really going on. Well, there's theological squirrels. Jesus is talking, the Lord of the universe is in front of them, and they're wanting to chase some pet idea about, well, what about if this were the case? This seven man had seven, this woman had seven husbands, seven brothers, all of them were husbands. What's going to be like in the eternal state? It's a theological squirrel. They're chasing hypotheticals. They have no desire to discover truth just to obscure the reality of their unbelief. And how often in our day are these tactics taken up? And how often are we taken up with these exact same, ta- same tactics? Now, I could try to give you an example here quickly. And this is from my own personal life. So just hopefully it's a non-threatening, not putting the heat on you too much in ways. But you might recognize yourself in ways that you take tactics against what you think you know you should do. All right. Very, very uh, non-threatening, not too condemning. That's why I'm safe to share it. But uh, I like writing utensils. I like um, pencils. I have a large collection. This is a Blackwing. This is a volume one by Palomino. I really like um, pencils. And so I've got scores of them. If you want uh, any recommendations on pencils, I have, go into my office, I've got boxes and boxes. This is a Blackwing, as I said, volume one. I like Blackwing 602s. I like Blackwing Pearls. Uh, this is a, I have a Blackwing volume 33 and a third, which is if you're uh, in the right era, you know what 33 and a third is about. That's the size of a record. 30, 33 and a third record revolutions per minute. And so it's black and looks like it's vinyl. And so it's a really nice pencil. And so uh, I've got those and I, I have a lot of pencils I could, and I've got to stop because I don't want to waste all of our time talking about my pencils. Um, but uh, last night, as I'm supposed to be working on this sermon and finishing up, making sure it's all tied up, I start Googling and shopping for other pencils. 
And there's, uh, there's these Blackwing Volume 4s, and they're red with a, with a special color ferrule that reflects the expo- exploration of Mars. So it's like tying up all the things I find interesting. I'm really, and so I put them in my cart. I go to PayPal. I put them in information. And I think, I don't need a pencil. I, I don't need any more of these. I don't need, and I've got $50 all of a sudden in my cart of different pencils to purchase and to sit in my office uh, unsharpened waiting to be used by me. Now, thankfully, God kept me from my foolishness. I didn't waste my $50 on more pencils that I don't need. As my wife, as she probably listens to this later, will be thanking, be thankful that I was prevented. But how did I get to there? How did I get to this justification of a, a really a foolish spending of my own money? Well, we could get into that for quite a while, but, but I know how the argument goes into my head. Now, this, you, know, you think, well, buying pencils isn't an issue of sin. Well, for me, it's an issue. It can be a sinful issue that I'm, I'm wanting to find some sort of joy and pleasure in my amassing of goods. It is greed in a very real way. It is this weird pleasure, this, this satisfaction, this I, in, in purchasing things. And I think if you're in my generation, for sure, you understand this weird uh, idolatry that we have of collecting things and buying things we have no need for, but just to have them. Now, I know that's an issue in my heart. So yes, for me... Not that I can ever buy a pencil again. I don't want to go that far. But for me, at times, it is a sin issue. How do I get to that point? Well, the first way is that I have a position that I want God to approve of. So I kind of avoid maybe bringing him into the picture even. I'm not thinking. I'm putting him out of my mind as I'm shopping for pencils. I ask questions around and around the issue instead of really diving into the issue. I really don't want to hear what he has to say about me finding my joy in acquiring more baubles. I don't want to hear his opinion on it because I know that I'm not going to like it. So I don't want to hear it. So I just ignore him. I have my position. I don't come to him for honest truth. I come to him to, to keep my joy and satisfaction in, in whatever else that is not him. In the scope of life, though, I, I, hold, I have this position, I have no interest in submission. But I can also put together a whole other narrative, which is this. What's wrong with buying pencils? I mean, honestly, you know, I mean, there's, some of the pencils are 50 cents a piece, or, you know, they're 30 cents a piece. You know, what's wrong with buying four or five pencils from this nice company that I know in, in New York, and they send them all nice wrapped up? What's wrong, really? And I could spin out some hypothetical thing. Of, I use pencils every day. I do. I use them for work here. I use them on my job. I use them at home for leisure. I like to draw and things like that. I use pencils all the time. And pretty soon I'm the Sadducee building up this hypothetical scenario so that I have my position and I have my hypothetical scenario so that I can go ahead and and in unbelief and in rebellion turn from where God has wanted me to go just to keep my own passions and my own desires. My inner Sadducee at that moment is rearing his head. This is not the pursuit of Christ for Christ's sake. This is the pursuit of my own self and my own desires, regardless of who Christ is and what he commands of me. So that's my silly illustration I spent too much time on. But take the issue of forgiveness in your own heart. Think about forgiveness. God has commanded, and we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us as we forgive, forgive our sins, debts, trespasses. Forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The command to forgive. 
And how often, how quick does your inner Sadducee rise up about the issue of forgiveness of someone that you know you should forgive and you just don't want to. So you're, you have your position. I'm angry. I'm upset over this. I'm whatever. So I'm, I've got my position. I'm not going to Jesus in submission to what he wants. I've got my position. I'm holding to it. And then you create hypotheticals. Well, I can forgive, but I'm not going to forget, which is at times a true statement. But I think what we mean by when we say, I'll forgive, but I won't forget, is that I'm, I'll forgive, but I'm not going to forgive. I think that's what we mean oftentimes when we say something like that. And so there is this issue of how often does this inner Sadducee rise up? The list of sins and wrong beliefs that we hold to in this way are as endless as there are sins on the planet of ways that we have our position. We have this, this truth we want to cling to. We have this inner truth, this inner desire. It's so real and so true. That's what I want to cling to. I don't care what Jesus says. I have my position. I hold him off. And I create hypotheticals to get out of feeling the conviction of my sin, to cloud the issue. It's the thing Tim, Paul writes to Timothy about in his second letter, the, the third chapter. He writes this... this um, that they are people endlessly searching uh, for asking questions and never arriving at the knowledge of the truth. Constantly learning, but never able to land on any real truth because we come like the Sadducees. Well, this is not where God wants you to land. This is not where I want you to land this morning. Jesus' point from the question that he has asked is to emphasize that God is the God of the living. And that means that as God lives, so also those who are in a relationship with Him live. There is a new life coming. How can we, if, if we want to come into Jesus, not with a position and, and, and out of submission, how can we come to this Savior in willing submission? We can come to Him in submission because we know that His desire for those who are His is for their ultimate and final joy. It is a joy that is only found in Him. And not only does Jesus want this for you, want this joy for you, He's going to merit it Himself. At the end of this Passion Week that we're just starting, He's going to merit it Himself by going to the cross, taking the sins that would shove you away from Him forever, take those sins upon Himself, so that by faith in Him, trusting in that work, verified by His resurrection from the dead, we can be forgiven. These sins that we have tightly clung to, He is going to take upon Himself to bring us to Him. So our big idea, coming to Jesus with a position instead of submission, is clinging to false religion. There's a positive way to say that. I got one more slide, I think, that true religion is coming to Jesus in submission and abandoning all unrighteous positions. I try to state it positively instead of it's always negatively. I've learned that from some people. Trying to state it positively. Positively, true religion is coming to Jesus in submission and abandoning all our unrighteous positions. Christ speaks of those in this passage, those who will know the resurrected life. And in less than a week, in this narrative, He's going to go to the cross and He's going to be the first also to experience new life. He is going to be raised. He's going to suffer on the cross. He cannot be stopped. It is a part of His divine mission. And He is going to raise from the grave in victory over death itself. The foe that none of us have any hope of conquering, death itself, Jesus has conquered. 
Why do we come to Him in submission? Why do we lay aside our passions, our desires, our wills, our wants? Why do we lay them aside? Because Jesus is Lord. And what the Lord of the universe wants, He should get. And we should give Him. We lay them aside because He is the Lord. All those who are His are no longer their own. They've been bought with a price. But the best part of all, we put aside those desires, those passions, those pursuits, those positions that we have that feel so true and right to us. We put them aside not just to suffer death, not just to take away our pleasure, though they may seem pleasurable in the moment. We set aside those things because there is true joy only in, in Christ. We do that for a joy beyond our imagining in Christ himself. He has promised this joy to all those who are his. And we ought to trust the one who died for us and was raised to life. He will perform all his holy will, dying, raising, and including in that is bringing the full and final joy of all of those who come to him truly in submission and abandoning all their unrighteous positions to trust in him. Let's pray. Father, help us here in this place this morning to abandon those positions that we all hold in hidden areas of our heart, God, where we reserve this right for us. We have this desire deep inside of ourselves. This is who we want to be. This is what we want to do. Father, help us bring those to light. Shine the light of your glory, the light of your presence into these dark corners that we would bring those positions, those unrighteous sins that we hold on to into your light, submission to you, so that we could know the full forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.